welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, brings a message in the Origin series that helps answer the five most important questions in life. How you live today depends on how you answer these questions. Here's John Metter with a teaching on the five questions. Well, it's great to see you today, and I want you to take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the very first sacrifice that ever has taken place on the planet. As you know, the sacrifice is very important to the Christian walk, the ultimate sacrifice being the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he died for our sins. But how does that add up with everything else that we've read about in the Scripture? Genesis chapter 3 today will help us understand that. We've been walking through the, three, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and we'll complete that journey today. We'll pick up Genesis chapter 4 uh, in a few months after the Christmas season has, uh, has come and gone, and we'll be back in it again soon. Genesis chapter 3 has a great deal of theology today. Today I'm going to take you in a little bit of a deep dive when it comes to theological things that have to do with God. The first few chapters of Genesis have taught us about who God is and what truth is. It teaches us how God deals with creation, how he deals with Adam and Eve. Today we're going to look at how God deals with sinners, which Adam and Eve now are, because Genesis chapter 3 is all about the temptation and the serpent in the Garden of Eden and the fall, the first sin, and what Adam and Eve have as a result of that first sin. But we're going to ask, answer other questions as well. The questions about the personality of God, the reliability of God, the predictability of God. And all these things are going to help us as we understand just how we relate to God. Let's stand together as we read God's Word today, beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. Last week we looked at the effects of the curse of sin. This week we began to look at the cure for sin. And in verse 21, the Bible says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've fallen from God. They realize they're naked and now they're ashamed, unlike what they were when they were innocent, naked and not ashamed. And so now they stand before God with this sense of guilt and this sense of shame, and, and they actually cover themselves with fig leaves, which is that famous painting that you've seen or uh, cartoons of that that you've seen from time to time. They try to cover their sin. But in verse 21, the Bible says that, that what God did was God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Very unusual scene in the Garden of Eden as men and man and woman are driven out from paradise, from this innocent state that they were in. Father, today my prayer is that you will speak to us from this text and help us understand all that you did and why. But even more than that today, Father, my prayer is that we will understand you, that you will, we will know you, that you will reveal yourself to us in greater ways today and help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our trust of you. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. 
Now, these verses move us from the cure or from the curse and the consequence of sin to the covering and the cure for sin. Very important journey that we're going to take today. Now, this journey is going to help you not only know about what happened in the Garden of Eden, but know how God deals with you today, how he deals with us when we have sin, when we have separation from him in our lives. They help us know how to move from rebellion and sin to a place where we're in God's presence, where we have his forgiveness, where where we know that what we do is covered by what he's done for us. And I'm going to give you a thread today, a thread that will hopefully tie together everything that you know about the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And by that thread, I mean a common vein that you'll run all the way through the Bible with, and you'll, you'll see it pop up from time to time in the books of the Old Testament or in the prophets, or you'll see it in the Gospels. You'll see it again in the book of Revelation, often referred to in the epistles, this thread that runs through the Bible. And it's going to be an encouraging thread. It's going to tie things together. It'll show you how God mends the relationship between God and man and why it's so important for us to understand that. So to do that, We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden for just a few moments, like our text has it there. We've got to go back to the expulsion of Adam and Eve from that garden and understand what God was doing. And at the end of the the time today, you're going to understand how God deals with the original sinners, how God deals with all sinners, and how he deals with you and I as sinners. And I promise you there's encouragement and hope at the end of this message for how God deals with all of us. So first of all, let's look at the first consequences. The first consequences. Last week we looked at a message that I call truth and consequences about what happens when Adam and Eve sin. And so we're going to rehash that just a little bit today and remind you of those first consequences because if you don't appreciate the first consequences fully, you're not going to appreciate the cure for those consequences. You're not going to appreciate the reason for the sacrifice. So the first consequences had to do with what happened as a result of sin. And when you read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, which we did in detail last week, you'll know five things take place. Spiritual separation takes place. Adversity that will be perpetual in our lives takes place. You'll know that conflict takes place in our life. You'll also know that hardship takes place in our lives. By the the sweat of our brow, we'll earn a living. We also know that physical death takes place. All that happens in the Garden of Eden as a result of sin. And sin just keeps on giving. By the way, if you haven't experienced this yet, sin just keeps on giving. It gives you early consequences. It gives you late consequences. It gives you unexpected consequences. It brings you eternal consequences. Sin is not a good deal. No matter what it looks like at the beginning, it's always, always a bad bargain. Now, Adam and Eve have learned this already. But now in this passage that we read today, we see it goes even further. First, I want you to notice they know and experience evil. Notice what God says about them. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. You know, it's one thing to observe evil. It's another thing to know evil. It's one thing to look at it in the life of the serpent that was trying to tempt them. It's another thing to experience it and to give in to it and participate in sin. So at this point, man has chosen evil and he knows good and evil from an experiential side. Not a good thing. Secondly, they are forbidden from eternal life. God says, let's say, reach out and take also the tree of life to eat and live forever. We're going to take them out of the Garden of Eden. You say, but isn't eternal life good? 
Isn't eternal life something that we like to talk about? And the answer is yes, as long as we are not eternally in sin and eternally separated from God. But at this point, Adam and Eve were not connected to God. They are separated from God. They have no longer the innocence that God gave them. And they are dark with sin, weighted down with sin. And God said, I'm not going to let them live like that forever. We're not going to let them have eternal life completely separated from me, which would be literally hell. That's what hell is, by the way. Hell is life eternal, separated from the God of love and the God of mercy and the God of holiness. God said, we're not going to let that happen. And then thirdly, they're banished from the perfect existence. And all these words are forceful. He sent them out. He drove them out. Literally, the idea is we're going to get them out of this garden because they cannot stand in this garden where my holy presence is because they're now sinful and I am holy. Now, Adam and Eve, in the meantime, are doing everything they can to cover their sin. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, and you see man's first attempt to cover sin. It says that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The pictures that you see sometimes when an artist renders the Garden of Eden is that picture of Adam and Eve, and they have these leaves that are covering them. They've made these garments. They have this thing that they put on them so that their nakedness and their shame can't be seen anymore. I just want to pause for just a moment and say, what a creative way to cover sin. And what a creative idea to think that God might not be able to see their sin and their shame if they just put these leaves over them. But that never works. And I want you to know that all of our attempts to cover our sin today don't work either. Now, while we may be more complex and a little bit more sophisticated in how we try to cover our sin, we might try to cover it with religion. We might try to cover it with doing good works. We might try to cover it by, by just letting everybody outwardly know that we are spiritual, but deep inside we're really not too spiritual. We try to cover it in a lot of ways. A little bit more sophisticated than fig leaves, but the reality is we can never cover our sin before a holy God. He sees through us all the way, and I hope you know that. Now, sometimes that's an uncomfortable thought until you realize that God is also along with his knowledge of your sin, made provision for your sin. And that's going to be an important part of what we talk about today. Man's first attempt was a massive failure to hide sin. They're still separated. They're still ashamed. They're still far from God. And it's important for us to pause and kind of feel that for just a few moments. Now, sometimes when people talk to me about what God did with Adam and Eve and what he does towards sinners today, those who have not been saved, who have not had forgiveness of sins, people who try to come to God on their own righteousness or their own uh, set of, uh, of what they believe is right. Uh, they ask this question when I say, well, God does not accept that from them. He does not give them favor just because they come with maybe a sincere heart, but the wrong way to come to God. They ask this question, isn't God cruel to banish man from the Garden of Eden? Is it kind of hard on them that God would be so vindictive that he would thrust them out of this perfect place that he created for them? Is God without mercy for man's sin? And is he still that way? Is he harshly deal with all the things that we do when we're imperfect and we have, have shortcomings? Just who is this God that acts this way between the man and the woman and himself? And I think these are valid questions that come from questioning minds. But today as we walk through this text, you're going to see something about the character of God. 
that helps you understand how God interacts with us. And for the next few moments, I want to talk about what we've already learned about God's character and who God is from the creation account. Now, as we go back to the creation account, we remember that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. So we know something about God. We know God is eternal, first of all. God perceives everything else that you can't imagine. God is. God was. God always has been. God is eternal. We also learn that God was self-existent. His existence doesn't depend on anything else or anyone else. So we're talking about a mighty God, the almighty God. Elohim is the word that we use in the book of, the, of Genesis to describe who he is. So we know God is self-existent. We know God is eternal. We know God is almighty. But as we walk through the scriptures, we also learn that God made man in his own image, but we also know that God is clearly distinct and different from man. For example, God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent, and we are not. Have you ever seen that old bumper sticker of years ago? We know there is a God, and you are not him. Have you ever seen that before? And when you think about the character of God, you realize that that's true. There is a God, and we are not him. And we know that because we're not self-existent. We're not eternal. We know that because we're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not everywhere at once. We don't know everything. We are not God at all. But God's character, as it's revealed in the Scripture, is very helpful for us in knowing how he deals with us. I like this explanation because when I look at the character of God, it explains to me why he is the creator and why I'm not. Why he deserves to be worshipped and why I don't. Why he speaks and all of creation responds and why I speak and nobody really responds. It also explains to me why God cannot be the opposite of these. Now think with me for just a few moments. Because God is omnipotent, he cannot fail. Because God is omniscient, he knows everything. Because God is omnipresent, he will never leave and never abandon us. And these unchangeable characteristics of God bring a very helpful predictability about God, the best kind of predictability. I mean, I live in a world, and you live in a world that's completely unpredictable. We have no one to rely on, no system to rely on, no truth to rely on if you leave it to mankind. But God is eminently predictable. He is exclusively predictable. He is all places at all times. He knows all things. He knows the future, the past, and the present. And all these things about God help us know his character. And he's unchanging in that character. By the way, there's a theological word we use to describe that. Lots of theology in today's message, but that, that, that theological word is immutability. God is immutable. You want to say that word with me? Immutable. God is immutable. And it simply means God is unchanging. And you're glad God is unchanging in a changing world. You're glad God is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that he can't fail, so God will not fail you. That means that he doesn't miss a detail, past, present, or future, so you can trust him with counsel. Everything he says to you is reliable. He cannot and will not be absent, so he's always everywhere you will be and everywhere you are, and you are never alone from God. And the reason all those things are true is because that's his nature. That's 
who he is. But along with all those other characteristics of God, I want to introduce another one to you today, and that is God also reveals himself to be holy. God is holy. Now, when we come to the issue of sin and the banishment from the garden, heaven and hell, holiness is a big deal. And the holiness of God is seen throughout the Scripture. The holiness of God refers to his purity, to his perfection. It reminds us that he is distinctly God. He alone is God. He alone is pure and perfect in every way. And as you read the Bible, you see his holiness being introduced in a variety of places. For example, if you were to go to the, uh, Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 1 and following, you'll see a scene that's being painted for us. And I'm going to read the words out of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, now these are flaming angels, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, this angel did. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraphim called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy. That is the seraphim in eternity, see God and see his holiness, his perfection, his distinctiveness from every other part of creation. In fact, Isaiah in that very scene realizes that he's a sinful man. Do you remember his response? He says, woe is me, for I am a sinful man, and I live among a people of sinful lips. Just knowing that the God of holiness was standing in that room for him and his vision caused him to be under conviction of sin. But you see this later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, where the angels in heaven are saying the same thing. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're talking about his future holiness, uncompromised by anything that he has done or the world has done. Now, we'd like to talk about the God of love, the fact that God is also love, but it's important for us to also say God is holy, and he will not be otherwise, or else he ceases to be God. Well, let me just remind you, if God is omniscient, he's not God. If he's not omniscient. If he's not omnipresent, he's not God. If he is not omnipotent, if he can't do everything, he's not God. If he's not love, he's not God. If he's not holy, he's not God. So God's character plays very heavily into what happened in the Garden of Eden and what has happened since that time in regard to us. But I want you to understand exactly how that looks. It's just his nature. Later on in the Bible, in Habakkuk chapter 1, we see a verse where God is spoken of and, and uh, talks about how he looks at sin and how he looks at rebellion. The Scripture says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. In other words, God would turn his face away from sin or rebellion. And the reason is, not because he's angry, not because his wrath is being poured out, but because he's holy. God responds out of his holiness because sin is not holy. And if God doesn't tolerate sin in his presence because of his holiness, he could not by his nature tolerate man in the Garden of Eden. And that's why he can't tolerate sinners going to heaven without their sin being covered by God himself. And that's why 
the, uh, the thing that was sown out of thick leaves did not suffice for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So just take away this idea, this, this point, this truth. It's not God's holiness or wrath that sends man out of the garden. I mean, it's not his anger or wrath, but it's his holiness. It is God's love that inspires the first sacrifice for sin. So I'm going to talk to you for about five minutes, which I have, about the difficulty of that garden situation, a few minutes about the character of God. And now I think we may be ready for the first sacrifice that takes place in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. You see, it's his character that brings him to this place of the first sacrifice. Now jump down to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now you need to see how significant this is. This is so significant because no death has taken place up to this point. God created heaven and earth and he loved it and he said it was good. He created Adam and Eve and said, it is very good. And now a few days later, most suppose, Adam and Eve have sinned, and now God looks at his creation and allows the first death to take place. When sin happened, a sacrifice had to be made, and that penalty for that sin is evident. That's why theologians call this moment in Scripture the fall of mankind. It's all falling, and man is helpless to do anything about it. But notice God's action. God moves quickly and immediately and sacrificially to cover the sin of Adam and Eve by shedding the blood of an innocent animal and taking its skin and creating a garment for them to cover their shame and their nakedness. Now, I happen to believe this is a big moment because God loved his creation and the uniqueness with which he created, the beauty with which he created all the animals and all the fish and all the birds in the air and the sky and the sea and everything else that God created. God loved his creation just like he loved us. And yet because of this division, this massive divide that took place because of sin, God took the first animal that he would sacrifice and put it to death. You do realize that before the flood, the man did not eat the animals. He did not kill the animals. He was vegetarian. I don't call that paradise, but apparently it was in the Bible. But no animal had yet died until this day. And God slew an innocent animal because his incredible holiness required it and his incredible love required that a sacrifice be made to pay for sin so he sacrificed part of his creation and ultimately his own son later on, as we know, to cover our sin for us. God gave up something precious because he deemed our reconciliation to be more precious than we could imagine. That first sacrifice began to cover sin until the ultimate sacrifice would deal with it once for all. And the reason we know that is because we keep reading the Bible. Adam and Eve knew they were covered. They were forgiven for that sin because they continued to interact with God. They weren't in the garden anymore, but they could understand what God was saying to them. And they began to interact and hear God. And they passed this principle of blood sacrifice to their own children. Look at the first two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we read this about them. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground which, if you remember, was cursed by sin. 
Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So you see that blood sacrifice that's beginning to be something that is acceptable to God. He accepts that animal that was given, but not the fruit of the ground. You keep reading the Bible and you'll see the Old Testament sacrificial system as well. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It's probably one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament that explains that Old Testament sacrificial system. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sin, for your souls, for it is by the blood, by reason of the life that makes atonement. You know what the word atonement means? It means payment for sin. It means buying back our unforgiveness so that we would be forgiven. And that principle is all the way through the Old Testament. The New Testament book of Hebrews summarizes the entire principle of blood sacrifice from Genesis all the way through Revelation with these words. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Now, theologians call this the scarlet thread of redemption that ties together everything God did to bridge the divide, to mend the division between God and man all the way through Scripture. And you see it everywhere. You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it in the tabernacle as sacrifices were made there in that tent of meeting. You see it in the temple later on in Jerusalem. And then you see it on Calvary where Jesus Christ died on the cross because God is distinct and because God is holy and can't look upon sin. Jesus died in our place so that God would give us favor through him. And maybe you remember that great moment where Jesus died on the cross and that awful moment where he said these words in Mark chapter 15. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't read that passage without realizing what an excruciating cry that was coming from Jesus, the Son. And the phrase, it sounds so foreign coming from his lips. But what was happening is Jesus was taking all the sin of all mankind on himself. He's bearing the weight of the sin of the world. It's so hard to imagine Jesus is, is doing what repulses him the most, letting sin be placed upon him because he's holiness and he did not sin and yet willing to let the sin of the world come upon him. Theologians tell us that God turned his face from Jesus. However you might word that, it's difficult to grasp. But the truth is that a holy God at that moment took all of our sin on himself. It's hard to find an analogy. If you might imagine today me standing in front of a huge pit on a stage above this place that's lower. And imagine this this place being a pit filled with poisonous snakes. Now, you and I don't want to imagine things like that. Occasionally, a movie scene will come up where we're forced to think about it like that. But imagine that kind of scenario. I mean, everything in me would be repulsed by the idea of being around poisonous snakes. I know they would bite me. I know they would ultimately put me to death. But just besides all that, just the hideousness of snakes, and I just think there is no good snake upon the earth except a dead snake. But imagine that with me if you just would for a moment. And then imagine that a child of yours would be in that snake pit, having fallen in. And you have a decision to make. 
His decision is, am I going to let my child be in that snake pit, knowing the poison is coming from him, knowing that death is coming from him? Or am I going to place myself in there with every attempt to rescue them from that pit? Now, that's not a great thing to imagine, but it's about as close as I can imagine human thinking paralleling what Jesus Christ actually did. Because what Jesus Christ actually did was he took the curse of the Son and the serpent on himself. He allowed that poisonous bite of the serpent not only to let him become sin on our behalf, but to taste death for every single one of us simply because he loved us in an ultimate way. He did that in spite of his holiness and his purity and the fact that he was the living Lord of life and he went through all that so that you and I might have our sin covered. And the picture of Genesis 3 21 is the first picture of what ultimately happened through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's powerful. It's permanent what Jesus Christ has done. But the most important thing is it's personal. He did that on the cross for you and I. Theologians tell me this as I read about this moment on the cross. It was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin in some unexplained way that Jesus experienced in that terrible hour. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this involved a separation from the face of the Father. He willingly goes through this, along with physical death, in our place. Later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, we read this, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation with that reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. You know what that verse tells me? It tells me that Jesus came the first time to deal with sin. And the second time he comes back is not to deal with sin, but to bring us to himself forever and ever. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has done everything necessary for sin to be taken care of. And this scarlet thread of redemption sews up the great divide between God and man beginning in the garden. So those animal skins are pictures of the salvation we have in Christ. And you and I, we have it all because of Jesus Christ. And you have the picture of it in the book of Genesis. The innocent animal that's killed, the shedding of blood, the covering for sin, and it mends the rip and the fellowship between God and us in terms of our communion. It begins as God's immediate response to sin, but it points to God's ultimate response to sin by placing Jesus on the cross. In other words, look at what Jesus has done to bridge the gap. Look at how he mends the divide. W.A. Criswell, many years ago, wrote about this scarlet thread of redemption, and I really hope this becomes a, a phrase that you share from time to time, that you remember from time to time, because you'll see it pop up in the scriptures, as I said. W.A. Criswell said, the scarlet thread of redemption is woven throughout the scripture. It traces God's unfolding plan of love to redeem fallen mankind. From Genesis to Revelation, this red ribbon represents our need for an innocent blood sacrifice. Ultimately, God sent his son to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So while sin means paradise lost, sacrifice means paradise is found in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus created the first paradise, but he's Lord over the greatest paradise. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to read about the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world, and all that ties together in the scarlet thread of redemption, God's love for us, God's holiness satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross. So much to grasp, so many things to fathom today. But here's what I want to bring you. I want to bring you to the cross for just a few moments. And I want to end there because that's where Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 ends. It really ends with Christ's perfect sacrifice. Now, you remember that day. You've read about it. You've heard about it. You've heard messages by people who share about the Lamb of God that was hanging on the cross. Remember John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now Jesus is hanging on that cross. And maybe you remember also... Crucified on either side of Jesus are two thieves. You may remember that the entirety of the religious system is also there that day. Judaism, with its legalistic adherence to the law, was there. Rome and Greece were represented there. Their exalted humanism and their quest for higher knowledge was there. But none of them have any hope to offer. So Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and crucified with him are two thieves. Now, if you read Matthew's account, you see both of these thieves mocking him. But if you read Luke's account, it says that one of them at some point ceased mocking Jesus and begins believing. Do you remember the scene? It's a powerful scene. The one who's beginning to believe is speaking to the one that's still mocking Jesus, who's hanging on that central cross. And he says, indeed, we're suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then this thief, this repentant thief, looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Bible positions this moment as a big moment because Jesus, the Bible says, said to him, truly, truly, today you shall be with me in paradise. I want to remind you that thousands of years before that moment, paradise was emptied of man. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and God covered their sin. But then when Jesus was on the cross, paradise comes back up, where he says, Today you shall be with me in paradise because of the blood sacrifice fully satisfied. Jesus could offer this man paradise forever and ever. Now keep in mind, this man did not keep the law. Keep in mind, this man was not a part of a religious group of any kind. Keep in mind this, mind, this man was guilty in every way. He admitted as such. Keep in mind, this man is not seeking out higher wisdom or greater knowledge. He's not trying to work his way into salvation. He's not promising that he can do anything for Jesus in the future days at all because he's about to die. He simply throws himself at the mercy of the one who's dying on the cross and says, Remember me, and Jesus said, Today... You shall be with me in paradise. What a picture of the blood sacrifice satisfied once and for all through Jesus Christ. The thieves' sin was covered, and he was saved by faith alone in Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And so are we. Do you know that your salvation rests completely on the blood of Jesus that died on the cross? Your only covering for sin is what he covers you with in forgiveness because of his payment for sin. 
There's nothing you can do to cover your own sin, nothing you do to earn your own salvation, nothing you can do to make everything you've done in the past right when all of it's been wrong. There's nothing you can do to make yourself any more attractive to God than you are because you and I are not attractive to God in our sinful state. He simply loves us anyway. There's nothing you can do religiously. There's nothing you can promise about the future. There's nothing you can do tomorrow or the next day to earn your salvation at all. All you can do is what the thief on the cross did. Say, Lord Jesus, remember me on the basis of what you're doing right now by shedding your blood, by satisfying God's holiness. On that basis, remember me when you come into your kingdom, whenever that is. And Jesus said, that's today. That's today. Today you shall be with me in paradise. I am so grateful that God bridged the divide, took the snake bite, so glad that God took on death and overcame it three days after he was buried just so that you and I could be absolved, forgiven for both sin and sinfulness of mankind, all of it taken care of from the garden onward through Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting anyone other than Jesus Christ, my, how you have misplaced your faith. And if you're confident in your own ways of trying to cover sin, oh, how far you're missing what Jesus offers. But if today you come and place all your confidence in Jesus, then you're just like that thief on the cross, just like I am. The promise of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. Have you done that? And if not, will you today? In just a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer. And what I want you to do is to consider the question, have you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, or have you not? And if you haven't, will you do that today? One of the most important decisions you make in your whole life, if not the most important, is this one right here. And this is the moment where you can make that decision. At the end of our service, we have people behind what we call our decision stations. As you make your way back to the back doors to exit today, you'll see those decision stations. And all you have to do is stop and say, hey, can I talk with you for just a moment? Because there are people there who want to talk to you about the very subject we've been talking about. They want to help you know how to put your faith and trust in Christ. It may be today God is leading you to make a different decision, a decision of rededication or a decision to, to, to deal with some aspect of your life. They're, re they're ready, they're prepared to talk to you about that decision today. Stop by a decision station today. I also invite you to Come meet me in the green room. I would love to go to the uh, guest reception room with you and just share a few things about our church and about what God is doing here. And uh, you make that spiritual decision first, and I would love to meet you afterwards. I would also invite you to turn around and invite people when you leave this place to come back to our services week by week where we're seeing people come to faith in Christ. We're seeing people discipled and growing in their faith. We want to be a part of that. We want you to be a part of that as you reach out to friends around you. Would you stand with me tonight, today as we close in prayer? Father, today, what an incredible demonstration Jesus has shown us by his act of sacrifice on the cross. Father, I thank you so much that you have shown us the scarlet thread of redemption that we read in the scriptures as a reminder that you've always been for our salvation. You've always been able to do what's necessary to cleanse us, to forgive us. And Father, it's our responsibility to respond to you today. I pray people will respond in faith to you. Lord, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for the promises you hold with an open hand. 
Today, Lord, let us respond to those in faith. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.